Back in November, um, we made the announcement that we had two pastoral candidates or pastor elders in process here at King's Chapel. Uh, The pastoral team unanimously brought Larry Robb, Mike Rockefeller on as a pastoral in process and uh, bringing them before you, the church, for the next 10 months or so, about seven more months left. And then you get to vote, the fun, get the final vote on bringing them out on as pastoral elders. Give you a 10 months a chance to, to meet with them, talk with them, pray with them, have lunch with them, take them out to lunch, uh, and uh, get to know them a little bit better because you're going to be responsible for that vote if you're a member here at King's Chapel. So we want you to be involved in the process. And part of that process is the preaching of the word. Larry's no stranger to the scriptures, no stranger to teaching the word, but first time here at King's Chapel. So, my brother, we look forward to bringing God's word to us. He's Thank a... you. Amen. Timer. They said it's connected to this. If I start feeling electrical shocks, say, and as the band comes up. <laughs> uh, anyway, as Pastor Lou said, uh, my name is Larry Robb. I am thrilled to be here with you this morning. Uh, my wife, Gina, who, as everyone knows, is definitely my better half, is sitting back there. And uh, we've been married for over 38 years. We've actually been together for almost uh, 44 years since we met working at McDonald's when we were 17. Our first date was on April 30th, 1980, and there's a a lot to our story. But let's just say that we're both sinners saved by grace, uh, for which we are eternally grateful to the Lord. He has blessed us with six children, some of who are here three sons-in-laws, one daughter-in-law, 11 grandchildren, uh, eight of them are here as well. And um, we lived on Long Island for over 57 years before we moved up here. We were full-time local missionaries there for the last 20-plus years that we were there. And now the Lord has planted us in Delmar and at King's Chapel, and for that we are also very grateful. Uh, As Pastor Lou said, please feel free to ask us about ourselves as you get to know us better and as we get to know you better. Um, I would like to pray before we get started, uh, asking the Lord's help in delivering this message, which it's always a good idea, but also because I'm very nervous being up here. You know, you think it's a home game, I wouldn't be so nervous, but <laughs> anyway. Lord, we just thank you, God, that, that you are God, there is no other. That this is the day that you have made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship you as we lift our voices in praise as we give back to you just some of what you have provided for us in our tithes and offerings. And as we approach your word with expectant and grateful hearts, I ask your help and your blessing as I preach it this morning, that it is rightly divided, that it is clear, encouraging, and challenging. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we are in the gospel according to Luke, mission to the world. Today is the 58th sermon in this series. And the scripture, as Matt read a little uh, a few minutes ago, is Luke 13, 31 through 35. And as I prepared for this morning and reflected on some of what we've been covering in recent weeks, I wanted to look at a few points that were previously made that impacted me quite a bit before we tackle today's scripture. As Pastor Chris said a few weeks ago while quoting Pastor Lou, you got that? <laughs> Pastor Chris, we should be living in a perpetual state of readiness, end quote anticipating the return of Jesus Christ and His second coming. We do not want to be caught in a state of surprise, of not being ready, or perhaps even caught with our hand in the proverbial cookie jar as it was. No, we want to be dressed and ready to keep our lamps burning in anticipation of the day 
when Christ will return. No one knows the hour of the day, but we do know that it is 2,000 years closer than it was then. Are we ready? And then I thought about what Pastor Ricky said a few weeks before that. There is truly only one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Jesus Christ. What is it that we chase after in this life? The material things that we cannot take with us? Or the eternal things that we can only gain through Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross for our sins? Do we consider Jesus to be our most valued possession, worthy of our greatest devotion? And do we seek to emulate Him in the things that we say, in the things that we think, in the decisions we make, in everything as far as how we live our lives? As Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 12 too, nothing remains hidden forever. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Our sin, our hearts will be exposed and in fact already are exposed to the one who created us, to the one who knows us better than we even know ourselves. Only Jesus can truly satisfy what thirsts within us. Praise God that we have a merciful Savior who desires that the lost come to know Him, who takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Ezekiel 33.11, the Lord says, Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Pastor Lou had also said that the door, Jesus, the narrow way, is the only way, and few will enter it. It is open to all, even his enemies who repent and are reconciled to him. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all who trust in him, friend and foe alike. The door is currently open. And the path to it is narrow, and it will not remain open forever. And as he said in ending, as Pastor Lou said in ending last week's sermon, it is only by God's grace that we can enter, and some who appeared to be on the inside will be left out, while others who appeared to be on the outside will be let in. And we let off left off with this scripture last uh, Sunday, we ended on, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And right after that is where we pick up today. Today's sermon is Jesus, a resolute, compassionate Savior. The first point is the Pharisee's pronouncement. The second is Jesus' confident response. And the third is the Savior's lament and promise. So the Pharisee's pronouncement. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. At that very hour makes me think, what time is it? Verse 31 connects this passage to what immediately precedes it and it is only one of these five verses we're going to look at today where Jesus is not speaking. And up to this point, Jesus has been talking a whole lot. He said a whole lot to a lot of people. In just the two previous chapters, we saw Jesus confront the Pharisees' blasphemy when they accused him of casting out demons by demons refer to the crowds coming out to see him as a wicked generation and refused to give them the signs they were demanding. He rebuked the Pharisees and the scribe with six woes, bluntly pointing out, amongst other things, how their man-made rules create burdens for people and yet they don't lift a finger to help them. They do not help people to enter the kingdom, rather they hinder them from entering the kingdom. In the beginning of chapter 12, thousands of people gathered to hear him and he warns his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The people will call numerous times to repent, to recognize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior, or they will perish apart from God. But he also taught that there is freedom in Christ. See the woman freed from a disabling spirit after 18 years when Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. 
Jesus healed on the Sabbath numerous times, annoying the synagogue and religious leaders. He compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. It is tiny now, but it will grow exponentially. And in Luke 13, 23, he is asked by someone, if there are only a few who will be saved, to which he responds, and this is a very short paraphrase of his full answer, yep. That is a brief snapshot of what Jesus has been talking and teaching on leading up to today's passage. And at this point, the Pharisees and those in power are not enamored of Jesus. So what time is it? It is time for the people, for the nation of Israel to repent. Jesus is telling them, your hearts are hard. Your heads are hard. Get over yourselves. Turn away from your sins and be saved. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And here I am weeping over you. How much more obvious does it need to be? Family, going through Jesus is the only way, but time is growing short. The door is open, but it is closing soon for this generation, and the fig tree is about to be uprooted. That's what time it is. Some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, where is here? Well, to be honest, the text, does not, the text does not tell us exactly where Jesus is. He is in Herod's jurisdiction, which narrows it down quite a bit, and it is thought that likely he is in Perea, which is south of Galilee and a bit north of Judea and Jerusalem. Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem, as he has been since Luke 9.51. He has passed through many cities and villages, teaching in short that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, has been fulfilled in their hearing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Moving on in verse 31, we read, who is, well, it, I'm asking, who is this Herod who wants to kill Jesus? It is Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He is the son of Herod the Great, who killed all the male children two years old and under after Jesus was born. He hated Jesus, and so does this Herod, his son. Herod was, not, was a non-Jew, and the Jews hated him. He brought idols into their cities and built um, the city of Tiberias on a, on a Jewish cemetery, which further stoked their resentment. This is also the same Herod who killed John the Baptist. He is a murderous man. Jesus knows that Herod killed John the Baptist. Oh, I might have said that already. <laughs> he, uh, Herod knows that Jesus is the man John the Baptist spoke of, and here he is ministering in Herod's jurisdiction in Perea. Crowds followed him, and Herod felt that he was a threat to his rule. In Matthew 14, 2, referring to Jesus, Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Of course, we know what Herod said is not true. Jesus is Jesus. He is not John the Baptist returned from the dead. But you can see why Herod might be feeling the tinge of guilt or concern having been the one who put the baptizer to death. Jesus gets word that this is the man who wants him dead. Who made this pronouncement? The Pharisees did. There were a few theories as to why they warned Jesus, but not a consensus on, on any one opinion. The Pharisees also hated Herod because he was a non-Jew. And while some have speculated that Herod put them up to it, it is questionable as to whether they were acting on Herod's behalf. But why do they warn Jesus? Maybe there were a few good ones, 
But that being said, the 26 other times that the Pharisees were mentioned in the Gospel of Luke were all disparaging. This is the only time that it looks like they had any real concern with him. So I'm skeptical as to whether their motives were for Jesus' own good or was it self-serving for them in some way. This much is certain. The Pharisees' warning comes after all Jesus' words rebuking them. They were fed up with Jesus and they don't want him there anymore. So perhaps they hoped that he would heed their warning, leave Perea and go back down south to Judea where they had more influence and might better be able to squash what he was saying. Whatever the case, Jesus continues his steady march to Jerusalem and they do not like what he is doing, what he is saying. In fact, they hate what he is doing and what he is saying. Jesus is the light of the world and he is shining his light into their darkness and the darkness will not stand for it. It's an amazing thing that no matter how serious the opposition Jesus faced, be it from the common people, the religious leaders, or the secular rulers, that he would not waver from his mission. His message does not change. Everyone is born a sinner. Everyone born needs a savior. God has made provision for that through his son Jesus because that's how much he loves us. What a great God we serve. Is your heart open to hear this? Have you responded to the power, person, and work of Jesus Christ? That is the clarion call before the world. Point number two, Jesus' confident response, verses 32 and 33. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Why did Jesus use that word fox in referring to Herod? If we use the word fox, it could mean a literal fox as in an animal. It can also mean crafty, sneaky, or to act deceptively. To be sure, Herod was the latter. In the Hebrew language, it describes someone as an annoying pest, a varmint, an insignificant petty nuisance. It was definitely an insult. It was also used during that time as a contrast to being described as a lion. Most leaders would not object to be to being called a lion, a strong, powerful, regal animal. But in calling Herod a fox, Jesus is showing him an utter lack of respect. His response to Herod has no fear, only contempt and disdain. Think about that. If you knew someone wanted to kill you, and there was no doubt that that person possessed the means and the disposition to do so, how would you respond? Would you intentionally insult him? Jesus showed no one else this kind of contempt. Herod the Great is also the one who Jesus did not bother to answer when he stood before him later on in Jerusalem after being sent there by Pilate right before he was crucified. In Luke 23, 8 and 9 we read, When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So we questioned him at length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. Leon Morris said, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. And Kent Hughes follows that up with, Herod was a dead man in every way, end quote. Jesus' message to Herod was, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. He is not referring to a literal three-day period here. It is today, tomorrow, and some days after that. But it is a short period, and that will end soon. And while some say the third day reference has to do with his resurrection, others say it does not, it is certainly in view, and Jesus knows he is ultimately headed 
excuse me, he's ultimately headed to his crucifixion and resurrection. But what he is saying is, I will keep doing what I am doing, what I have to do until I am finished. Jesus knew he was going to die, but he also knew it was not now, it was not there, and it would not be on Herod's terms. What is it that he will continue to do? I cast out demons and perform cures. P.J. Riken, in his commentary, states, Jesus came to do the kingdom work of delivering people from the devil. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus casting out demons as a sign of his ultimate triumph over all the powers of hell. He also cured people's diseases, reversing one of the effects of the fall by meeting their physical needs. In his ministry of healing, Jesus came to save people's bodies as well as their souls, end quote. And he will continue to do this work until he is finished when he takes our sin upon himself and lays down his life on the cross. No man takes his life, not Herod, not the Pharisees, not the Romans, not anyone. Rather, it was God's predetermined plan that Jesus, the Son of God, would become the propitiation for our sins. It had to be this way. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God given as the final sacrifice for all who believe. Jesus, speaking of his death, said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, John 10, 18. Herod means to kill him, but Jesus does not fear him. He refused to run from him because he must complete his work. Are we this courageous? Are we this confident in the gospel that we are fearless in the face of real persecution? How many of us have truly experienced real persecution? Precious few, I would guess. In the face of true opposition, we are willing, are we willing, in the face of true opposition, are we willing to keep moving forward, trusting that God is faithful and that if he called us to something, he will be with us every step of the way? Are we willing to lay aside ourselves, our own agendas, even our lives, even our lives, to get the gospel out to where it needs to be in our hometowns or to the furthest ends of the earth? Ligon Duncan said, there is no country that is closed to the gospel if we are willing to die. Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to die, but he did not fear going, and he would finish what he came to accomplish. We can be so fearful of the unknown. Isn't that true? We like to know what is going to happen, when is it going to happen, and why is it going to happen. We also like to know the outcome in advance if possible. And most of us tend to avoid situations that we perceive might be harmful to us. And that could be physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever the case. Contrast that with the fact that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He knows when it's going to happen, he knows how it's going to happen, and he knows why it's going to happen. Still, he is resolved, steeled to go and complete the mission. Jesus shows a ton of confidence, courage, and faith in God's ultimate plan, and he recognizes God's sovereignty in all of it. He is a model of obedience and resoluteness to follow God's plan to the end, his death for our sins. In verse 33, Jesus responds now to the Pharisees, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 
Jesus' answer to the Pharisees is similar to the one he gave Herod, but he adds the word must. P.J. Reichen says regarding this, it's a great explanation, so I decided to just go with this quote. When he said, when Jesus said must, he was saying that he was under a holy obligation. It was divinely necessary for him to finish this healing, saving work. Jesus had to do it because it was the desire of his own loving heart. He had come into the world for the very purpose of saving poor sinners from the disease of their bodies, the demons of their souls, and the depravity of their sinful hearts. Jesus had to do this because the mercy of his divine character compelled him to do it, but he also had to do it because this work was his Father's will. Behold, Jesus said, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, Hebrews 10.7. The will of God was for the Son to do everything that the Father said needed to be done for our salvation. The full work of redemption, the Son of God must do what he eternally promised that he would do, end quote. And then we come to, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus, Jesus is speaking of his own death, and Jerusalem is where that death will occur as it had for other prophets before him. See Uriah in Jeremiah 26 who prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel and was slain by the sword. See Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest in 2 Chronicles 24, another of God's prophets who was put to death by stoning in the courtyard of the temple. It was also in Jerusalem that they tried to kill Jeremiah, but an Ethiopian eunuch spoke up for him and King Zedekiah relented, so Jeremiah was spared. Jerusalem was a very dangerous place for prophets. They challenged the established traditions, attitudes, and institutions of Israel, and they were met with great hostility. In Acts 7.52, Stephen spoke to this in front of the high priest in Sanhedrin immediately before being stoned to death, saying, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Jerusalem was the headquarters of a religious hierarchy that was more interested in preserving their power than in hearing what God had to say. In Luke 9.22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And this would happen in Jerusalem. That is why, as we have heard pretty much every week since it was said in Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and he was going there to die. The irony is, if Herod or anyone else for that matter, truly wanted to kill Jesus, they better hitch a ride to Jerusalem because there and only there will Jesus die. Jesus' words show that he is confident in who he is, in why he came, and that God's plan will not be thwarted. No man is going to take his life from him. He will lay it down of his own accord. He will not die before the appointed time, not until his work is finished, and it will be in the appointed place, Jerusalem. Number three, the Savior's lament and promise in verses 34 and 35. Having answered Herod and the Pharisees, Jesus turns his attention to the people. He knows that a gruesome death awaits him in Jerusalem, yet his concern is for the people. As strong as Jesus was in the preceding verses, he seems to be equally in anguish over the spiritual condition of those who refuse to be saved. And his compassion is evident. 
Often we see this referred to as Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. He begins with Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is reminiscent of several other double vocatives such as Jesus calling out Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul. And I had to look that word up in the dictionary, by the way, vocative. It basically means when calling out to someone or something, vocative. I tried to work it into a conversation a few times, but it hasn't worked <laughs> thus far. <laughs> Other examples are David's mourning over his son Absalom's death in 2 Samuel 18. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Jeremiah calling to the nation in Jeremiah 22. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. You can sense the utter grief and the sense of loss as David cries out. And we could also picture Jeremiah's passion and concern for the nation that they do not repent. How much more so must Jesus have experienced these feelings over the impending loss of so many in Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus' tone is both sorrowful and prophetic and you can perceive the agony in his voice as he calls out to them. What Jesus is saying here is not new. This had been said of Jerusalem since ages past, as we noted a few minutes ago. And he continues, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He is expressing God's affection for the nation in a word picture, it is a gentle one, a mother hen calling, uh, caring for her flock, her defenseless little chicks. The image Jesus has drawn of taking refuge under God's wings has many precedents in Scripture. And here are just three examples. The psalmist prays, I will dwell in your tent forever. I will take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Psalm 61.4. In Psalm 91, a wonderful psalm of God's protection. In verse 4 we read, He will cover you with His pinions or feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. Ruth 2.12, Boaz says to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What great compassion Jesus has for sinners. In the words of J.C. Ryle, he knew well the wickedness of that city. He knew what crimes had been committed there in the past. He knew what was coming on himself at the time of his crucifixion. Yet even to Jerusalem, he says, How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. End quote. Jesus assures Jerusalem that he longs to give them protective care, to provide the sustenance, warmth, and security they need. The tragedy is that they are not willing to receive it. Are you tucked safely and securely under the Savior's wings? The gospel points to our need for a Savior to come under his protection, to be covered by the blood of his sacrifice in order that our sins be forgiven. That's the only way. But so many are not willing and Jesus agonizes over the fact that many will not be in the kingdom. Verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is both the object of Jesus' compassion and the object of his divine judgment. People who are unwilling to come are under his judgment, yet the gospel goes out to them over and over and over again. 
Jerusalem heard the invitation many times, but they would not repent. They would not believe. They would not be saved. And who could they blame but themselves? They had been afforded every opportunity. His love is more powerful than our sins, but we must make the decision. Ligon Duncan said, Jesus cares more about our salvation than we do. People often ask, how are we held accountable for not making that decision if God is sovereign over all things, including our salvation? It is a great question, a complex question that deserves a whole sermon series. But for today, I will leave you with a quote from J.C. Ryle. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility shall appear perfectly harmonious one day. In the meantime, whatever we doubt, let us never doubt Christ's infinite willingness to save. End quote. God is sovereign over all, including our salvation, yet man must respond to the gospel to be saved. And if not, he will be held accountable for his sins. This is the warning given to Jerusalem and rejected. Behold, your house is forsaken. Suffering was soon to befall Jerusalem. Some scholars conclude that Jesus was addressing the city as a whole as being a house for God's people. Others believe he was speaking about the temple, which was the house of God. But either way, the prophecy comes true as God eventually no longer protects Jerusalem and his presence will no longer reside in the temple. Jesus makes, Jesus makes it clear now and then later in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, as he is finally entering Jerusalem, that judgment will come at the hands of Rome. That instead of being under God's protective wings, they will be exposed and at risk of attack by the enemy. That is the result of sin and rejection of God's ways. And just a matter of years later, in AD 70, the city was overthrown and the temple was destroyed. What happened in Jerusalem can happen to any single person, church, city, or nation who rejects the safety of coming under the Savior's wings. But there is no other way. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if not, we will be forsaken by God. What can be worse than being turned over to our own sin? Three times in Romans 1, 24 through 28, we see the phrase, God gave them up. The Greek word translated gave over or gave up means surrendered, yielded up, entrusted, or transmitted. In this context, it refers to the act of God completely abandoning the unrighteous. As the wicked deserted God, God in turn deserted them, no longer giving them divine direction or restraint, but allowing them to corrupt themselves as they wished. Because they would not honor Him, He let them do what they pleased and they dishonored themselves. Being given over or yielded up to one's sinful desires is a judgment from God. God's wrath is both active and passive. If and when God turns you over to do whatever you want, you are in serious trouble. We are not excused from His wrath. We will still pay for every sin that we ever committed. But some people delude themselves into believing that because things are going well, while they're living in sin, that they're okay. That's not the case. God's wrath lets a person do whatever they want. He allowed the Israelites who rebelled to reap the natural, natural consequences of their sin. Psalm 81, 11, and 12 says, But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. 
The Spirit's restraint of sin is a blessing. But when that restraint is removed, wickedness follows. This is the situation that people found themselves in in Jesus' day. And he pronounces judgment upon them if they do not repent. That's the bad news. The really, really bad news. The good news is that Jesus is still extending to them an invitation to turn from their wicked ways, to embrace him and be saved, but not for long. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote of an Old Testament benediction from Psalm 118.26. On that point, it seems pretty much everyone can agree. After that, it gets more complicated. Scholars debate as to whether this passage is referring both to the present time, specifically the triumphal entry coming up, or the future parousia, the second coming of Christ. Most of the commentaries I read acknowledge this verse is difficult to interpret, and that's a quote, and I agree. Some people believe, some believe Jesus was making a prophecy about his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We know it will be shouted by his joyful disciples on Luke, in Luke 19.38 as they witness his entry into Jerusalem the week before he dies. And these are the same people who will turn on him less than a week later. And in that context, it is a promise of salvation and it will be a joyful, long-awaited occasion. Others say that because of the context that we are in in Luke 13 and the serious nature of all that has come before this verse, it would seem out of place for Jesus to be making a joyful declaration in the Luke 13 reference. Thus, many hold the view that Jesus was speaking of his second coming at the end of time and that it is a warning of judgment. Almost every commentary that I read, I did spend a lot of time on this, especially yesterday, uh, decided that that was more likely the meaning of the verse. It's difficult. <laughs> in Romans 14, 11, and 12, Paul quotes Isaiah, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Philippians 2, 10, and 11, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 1, 7a, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. When that day comes, when Jesus returns, everyone, including those who rejected him in Jerusalem, will acknowledge that Jesus is Savior. Every eye will see him, every knee will bow before him, and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Jesus' second coming will mean blessing and salvation for those who trust in him by faith, but eternal torment and damnation for those who do not. The invitation to come under his sheltering wing will no longer be open at that time when they see Jesus as he truly is. It will be too late. Church family, this is a serious message and it is one we need to consider both for ourselves and for others. For each of us here this morning, where are you regarding this most important decision? Do you know this Jesus, the one who came to die for the sins of the world, who finished the work he came to do to the very end? This Jesus whose heart broke with compassion over Jerusalem and whose heart breaks even now over those who are lost. Imagine that God feels this way over our sin, that he is broken for us. 
that He wants us to be reconciled to Him so much, so much so that in eternity past, He decided to give up His Son. And that very Son is willing to lay down His life for us. God showed His love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died. Romans 5.8 That's where we are right now. That's where every sinner eventually finds themselves at the crossroads with a decision to make. And make no mistake, a decision must be made. A non-decision is a no answer to the call to repent and be saved. Neutrality is a myth. God has laid before us life and death. Choose life. I pray that if you, if you have not already, that you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and find salvation in Christ by faith today. Do not let this time pass. Today is the day of salvation. And then let us consider others. Are we truly living our lives, the very life that God has blessed us with? Are we living those lives on mission? Are we bringing the good news of the gospel to our homes, to our extended families, to our workplaces, to our communities and beyond? We have a compassionate Savior who was resolute, steadfast in His mission, unafraid to preach the good news no matter the cost. Do we have that same compassion for the lost and resoluteness to fill the Great Commission? As the band comes up, I'm going to close with a Scripture verse and then pray. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake He... God the Father made Him, Jesus Christ the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Let's pray. Thank You, Jesus, that You are a compassionate, resolute Savior. One who takes no pleasure in the demise of the wicked. Rather, you have made provision for everyone, friend or foe, who calls upon your name to be saved. Help us, God, to follow you with all that is within us, to apply the things we have heard this morning as we live our lives on mission for the gospel, to be light in a dark world that desperately needs to hear the good news and the hope in the gospel message. Christ came, Christ died, Christ was raised on the third day. Therein lies our hope. Be with us now, Lord, as we respond and lift our voices to you in praise. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.